We are continuing our Messiah series, working through the Gospel of John. And today's text comes to us from John chapter 14, 1 through 14. And these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm coming there or going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been you, around you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of, of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Christine. Um, this past week, our staff. We uh, took some time to mark Christine's transition from one of our pastoral staff, a bittersweet moment, a lot of sweet, a lot of bitter. And um, I wanted to go ahead and let you know that we've been trying to find an opportunity for our community at large to do the same thing. And so next Sunday on the 17th of January, four in the afternoon to five, uh, we're going to be doing a Christine drive-by, an opportunity for us to, in a safe, um, physically distanced way, uh, to drive by or drive through, and a chance to say to Christine how much we are grateful for and appreciate you, and that we are um, praying for and cheering you on in this next season. And so um, in our building on the west side, which is the side that's closest to the highway and faces that way, um, we're, there's going to be some sort of uh, setup. You'll, you'll figure it out. There won't be a lot of other things going on here. We'll have hot chocolate and warm hearts, 
and it'll be an opportunity for you to greet Christine. And if you want to leave something with her, a card, a letter, one of your poster board collages, a year supply of Marie Katrieb's chocolate pudding, anything like that, please feel free to do that. Uh, again, we're trying to find a, a, a safe opportunity for our community to mark this transition. So please join us next week, next Sunday, 4 to 5 p.m. Bless you, Christine. We love you, and we are grateful for your being a part of things here with us and for the ways that we'll continue to co-labor together for the kingdom. Thanks. Um, my name is Troy. Uh, glad to be here today and uh, to help us take a peek at this remarkable text. As we begin, I want, I want to invite you to do this first. I want you to bring to mind the most memorable meal you've ever had. Can you picture the most memorable meal you've ever had? Uh, for some of us, that memory is going to center around how good the food was, a particularly well-cooked piece of steak, maybe a piece of fish that was just pulled out of the ocean earlier that day. Maybe it's the mashed potatoes that only your grandmother knows how to make. For some of us, that memory is going to center around an environment of the meal, the people that you were eating with, maybe that incredible view out of the windows, the unique setting of the room. A forefront in my mind, there was a meal that Liz and I and a couple of friends had um, that was actually in a restaurant that has earned three Michelin stars. And it was once voted ninth on the San Pellegrino World's 50 Best Restaurants list, number nine, second best restaurant in the United States. That certainly sticks out in my memory. Uh, and then there'll be, for some of us, that meal is going to be memorable for very different reasons, for more uncomfortable reasons. Uh, maybe an unexpected announcement was made. Maybe there was a relationship-ending argument that took place. Or, or maybe something so absurd happened that you still laugh about it when you retell the story now. Our pop culture loves to capture the last of these examples. The pop culture loves the uncomfortable meal scenario. Um, I didn't get to watch it this year thanks to a newborn, but I always love watching the meal scene in Christmas Vacation. That motley group of family around the table with the blessing that ends up being, you know, an, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance instead of a prayer and this disaster of a turkey. Um, how about this? How many of you remember the first time you watched the supper scene in Meet the Parents? I remember being in the theater wanting to crawl underneath the movie theater seats. I felt so physically uncomfortable with what was going on. Maybe the best and worst example of all is from the American version of The Office, the dinner party. A total train wreck of 30 minutes. These scenes are so memorable for us and they're so evocative because we all sense that a shared meal is really special. It's really intimate. And whenever something crashes into that meal to disrupt that intimacy, um, it's so jarring. And we have a sense that maybe that didn't belong here. So as we turn our attention to today's section in the Gospel of John, we need to remember that an unforgettable meal has just taken place. Jesus and the disciples were gathered together for what seemed like just 
another ordinary meal. In chapter 13, it actually gives us this little detail. It says um, the meal was in progress. It's like a little hint that things were just going as they normally go. But this ends up being a meal that changed everything for these disciples. Jesus first starts to behave like a slave by washing these disciples' feet, catching them totally off guard. And then he predicts that one of those disciples is going to betray him. And it's dramatically revealed that it's Judas. And then Judas gets up, leaves the group and the meal. If that wasn't enough, then Jesus starts to tell his disciples that he's going to be leaving them for good. Echoing a prediction that he made in chapter 12, predicting his death. And then finally he says to Peter, Peter, soon you will deny knowing and disown me. Talk about an uncomfortable room full of confusion and hurt feelings and panic. And it's into that scene after this bombshell dropping meal that Jesus speaks these words to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This section of John that Christine just read for us a couple minutes ago, it's full of familiar and well-loved verses. And that can often be hard to preach on those verses, to cover that ground. Um, Even though many of us are familiar with these words, we probably interact with these verses most of the time outside of their fuller context, which makes total sense. We're not citing a verse and reading chapters 13 through 17 to get the entire story. And that isn't a problem, but it does mean that for many of us, these well-loved verses and words, maybe they're more limited. Maybe we have a narrower understanding and perspective on the words of Jesus. So uh, after what must go down in history as one of the most uncomfortable and unsettling meals of all time, we have to remember these disciples, they actually have plenty to be troubled about. Jesus follows up all that he's done and all he has said with these kind of unusual words, do not let your hearts be troubled. But I think this reveals to us the heart of Jesus. Jesus intends to comfort his disciples. These men who in chapter 13, it describes them, it calls these men his own, Jesus's own. What Jesus has to say to these disciples next, it has to be understood according to this starting place, that his words are not meant to establish theological correctness or to discipline or to put someone in their place. Jesus intends to reassure and to comfort his disciples. And by extension, Jesus wants to comfort us as well. You and I who are inheritors of this faith, who are disciples of these disciples, however many times removed. But I'll be honest, I have some real difficulty with these opening words of Jesus. Because it just so happens, I am troubled. My heart is troubled. And if these words can be received by us in our current moment, 
Well, I have to admit that they start to sound just a little bit dismissive because I'm really troubled by quite a few things. I'm troubled by the 4,180 COVID deaths this past Friday alone, the highest number since April. Mothers and fathers, sons and daughters and brothers and sisters who are not statistics to be debated, but fellow humans made in the image of God. I'm troubled that in London, England, where some of my dearest friends live, that one in 20 people have contracted the coronavirus in this new mutated surge. And the city's on yet another massive lockdown. I'm really troubled by images from this past Wednesday in our nation's capital. Faces of glee, faces of self-satisfaction, while blatantly disrespecting and disregarding common decency and order. I'm troubled by the logic-bending ways that some people are choosing to justify the obvious double standards put into place and upheld that further perpetuate the unfair treatment of people of color in our country. I'm troubled that yet another event has taken place that requires statements that condemn racism. In our day and age, racism should be universally and unequivocally eradicated and never tolerated. I'm troubled by how the global church so little resembles the unified body that Jesus prayed for. Divided by some of these things that I've talked about, but so many other things that are insignificant, trivial, less central realities. I'm troubled by the number of people that I know who are currently dealing with ailing parents. Parents suffering from dementia. Whose bodies are slowly breaking down who are requiring care and new living situations that are just heartbreaking to consider. My heart is troubled because there are deeper realities that cannot be solved by simply turning to a new page on a calendar. There are deeper realities that cannot be fixed by a new person coming into a political office or by a new person coming into a lead pastor office. There are deeper realities that cannot be cured by a vaccine. So my heart is deeply troubled. But I am so grateful that Jesus didn't just say, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because he goes on through the rest of these verses to assure his disciples, to assure us that he alone is our source of reassurance and comfort when our hearts are deeply and widely troubled. I today need the assurance and comfort of Jesus. And I think it's safe to assume every one of us need to be comforted by the words of Jesus. So today, receive these words as he intended. Hear his compassionate voice in these verses. 
receive his assurance and his comfort in four ways. Intimacy now. These words of Jesus in verses two through four are some of the most cherished. Many of us are familiar with these words and the way that they function at funerals. They're a reminder that though earthly life is over, there is life after death in the presence of Jesus and the Father, a perfectly correct and fine understanding and perspective. It's also appropriate and faithful interpretation to see this as a picture of Jesus' second coming to rule and reign fully over a restored creation. But remember, Jesus is seeking to comfort his disciples now. And I believe that he intends more than a one day everything will be all right kind of promise. John, after all, is the most incarnational of all of the gospels. He begins this whole thing with the words, the word became flesh. The word was actualized, embodied, uh, realized in the here and the now. So it would be out of character for John to adopt a future only kind of orientation. I believe that Jesus is offering the disciples comfort by promising intimacy now, even though he will be physically absent. The translation that we use uh, here, TNIV or NIV, probably for many of us, it, it mentions there being plenty of room in the Father's house. Older translations talk about mansions. Dwelling place is probably the best way of understanding and translating what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, dwelling place... Is, is a noun form of a verb that Jesus uses just one chapter later in chapter 15 when he says these words, abide in me. In chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the, for the disciples, addressing the Father using these words. He says that they may be one Father. And check it out here. Just as you are in me, and I am in you, I in they, and you in me. I think we can understand and imagine Jesus as the Father's dwelling place. I think we can understand Jesus encouraging the disciples to dwell right now in him. And if Jesus is inviting us into that kind of intimacy, available right now, not just some sort of heavenly realm when we die one day, then I can better understand these words as a kind of timely comfort. His words come just as powerfully to us today. Abide in me. Make me your dwelling place. Make your home in me. He promises there is plenty of room. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Intimacy and presence are available and possible now. Second, the pathway is a person. 
Thomas and Philip are really helpful characters in this story. I'm really grateful that they're included because I think they serve to validate the many questions and places of confusion that so many of us bring to our faith. I'm encouraged to know that there is room in our relationship with Jesus for an honest acknowledgement of our confusion and of our desperation. And so when Thomas says on behalf of all the other disciples, it seems like, that they don't know where Jesus is going, I'm really grateful that he brings it up. I like the way that Bruner translates the words of Thomas. He says it this way, Lord, we don't have the foggiest idea where you're going. So how can we know the way there? And then we get what is perhaps Jesus' most memorable self-definition in all of the Gospels. I am the way and the truth and the life. Another familiar batch of words that we need to understand as a source of comfort because the disciples, I think they're confused and they're worried about being alone and they're worried about being lost. And so these words of Jesus, they speak comfort to all of them. You don't need to stumble along in the dark trying to find your way. There's no need to panic. There's no need to search desperately for a secret map. Jesus himself is the way. We can know the truth because Jesus himself is the truth. We can know and experience the fullness of life because Jesus himself is the life, a life that he promised to the full in John chapter 10. Friends, do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is pointing out to us that the way is not a method, but a person. The Reformation pastor Martin Luther, he loved the book of John, and he loved these words. And he preached this, uh, with these words, Christ wants to tear and turn our hearts from all trust in anything else and pin them to himself alone. In his classic book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis, he, he has Jesus speak these words. I am the way by which you ought to go, the truth you ought to believe, and the life you ought to hope to have. And then more recently, Leslie Newbegin, he stresses this, it is not that Jesus teaches the way or guides us in the way. If that were so, then we could thank him for his teaching and then proceed to follow on our own. No, he himself is the way. Friends, don't lose sight of the who by trying to figure out the how. Focus on the person and not the method. The pathway is the person. So hear his words as a source of comfort. I am the way there. And I am the truth that will lead you along the way there. And I am the life that will give you the power 
to follow the truth along the way there. God is revealed. For many of us, when a crisis comes, some kind of disruptive event, either personally or globally, take your pick, death in the family, a global pandemic, civil unrest, I think many of us begin to instinctively question ultimate realities. We start wondering things like, what is God actually like? I can imagine these disciples in this scene feeling shaken and rattled and wondering something similar. So this might explain Philip's request of Jesus. When he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I mean, how many of us haven't asked for the same thing? God, just give me a sign that you're good. God, assure me that you're still in control. Whisper to my heart that you can be trusted. I think Bruner's translation of Philip's words, they're both really earthy and I think they're really relatable. And when he says, Lord, show us the Father and we won't ask you for any more favors. Because it's a universal longing. It's a longing of all people. It certainly predates us. It's older than even these disciples. If we look back into the book of Exodus, chapter 33, we find Moses having a conversation with God, and he's looking for some assurance in a really trying time. And Moses says these words to God, show yourself to me. Show yourself to me. Well, friends, do not let your hearts be troubled. We can know the Father and what the Father is like because of Jesus, the Word made flesh. Jesus has embodied this longing, this universal longing. He has embodied Philip's request to see the Father. When Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus has been trying to stress his intimate connection with the Father throughout the book of John. Uh, just a couple of examples. John chapter 8, 28. He, it, Jesus said this, I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. And then at the very end of chapter 12, he says, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. The biblical scholar Raymond Brown, he, he wrote about these verses. He said, precisely because neither Jesus' words nor his deeds are his own, then we know that these words and deeds tell us that Jesus is intimately related to the Father. In seeing Jesus, one sees God. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians tells us. And there is great comfort in knowing that the possibility of seeing God is inherent in our fellowship with Jesus. Jesus has made the Father known to us. And finally, power is available. I imagine the minds of these disciples were probably racing at this point. They're probably rewinding the tapes in their heads back to all these scenes with Jesus, probably wondering what on earth they meant. There was that water to wine moment. 
And that one time when a small lunch became a banquet. And how about that time when Lazarus was brought back to life and all these different healings and miracles. All these moments when healing and delight and abundance and life were made real. Are we all done with that stuff? Is that going to be over now? And it seems like maybe Jesus anticipates this question with these last couple of words in verses 12 through 14. We find Jesus here still comforting the disciples. Don't let your hearts be troubled because there is power available still. Big, miraculous things can still happen. Reminds me of that spot in Matthew 21 where Jesus says, "Um, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. I think Jesus is offering an invitation here to pray boldly, to ask in his name. Jesus is here extending his mission to his disciples in this scene. They will do even greater things in his name. And by extension, you and I are invited to carry on this mission. In a mysterious way, we get to share in the power that is shared by Jesus and the Father. Next week, we're going to focus on this next section of Jesus' words and that will focus on the Holy Spirit so that theme of power will be further explored um, uh, when we come to next Sunday. But take comfort, friends. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Pray boldly. Join the mission of God, confident in the power available to us from our generous God through our fellowship with Jesus. So where do you most need comfort today? Do you need a fresh sense of Jesus' presence? Are you longing for intimacy? Are you feeling far from home? Far from your dwelling place in Christ? Or maybe you're tired. You're tired from searching for the way from searching for ultimate truth, from searching for real life? Are you eager for that burden to be lifted and to encounter the person of Jesus, to give and to be what and who you are searching for? Perhaps ultimate questions about who God is and what God is like have been weighing on you recently. Maybe you're tired of feeling misled. You're tired of poor earthly representations of what God is like. And you're hungry for the one true revelation of God. Or maybe you've grown hopeless in these recent days. You're not sure your prayers matter. Or you're not convinced that joining the work of God in the world is actually doing any good. Maybe you need a reminder that there is power available, that God is still active and is working in and through his people. How accurately can you name and identify your own troubled heart? We're invited this morning to trust 
and to seek God's presence and to pray boldly in Jesus' name. And so it's natural that we would turn to the table as a response. Because we come to this meal every week trusting in God's steadfast love. A love for us that is greater than our weaknesses and our doubts and our fatigue and our frustration and our troubled hearts. And we come to these simple elements believing that we encounter Jesus here. It's a mystery, but we believe that he is present with us. And we pray boldly. We pray that the Spirit would give us what we need. The Spirit will strengthen us and the Spirit will feed us. That the Spirit will do a work in us that is beyond our ability to ask or to imagine. And so we are invited to trust and to seek and to pray and to take and to eat. And so, friends, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts and let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We're reminded when we come to this meal that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed that he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took a cup after supper and he said this is the covenant a new covenant in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we boldly pray and we ask the Spirit to do a work here in this meal. Spirit, would you comfort our troubled hearts? Jesus, would you be undeniably present with us in these moments? Spirit, Father and Son, show us your face and the face of one another in the body and the blood of your church that we, your people, may be taken by you, blessed through you, broken for you, and given for the life of the world. And amen. And then we summarize this story with these simple phrases that we inherit from other hungry and thirsty followers of God throughout uh, generations. And joining our voices together with these words, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So friends, take and eat, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.